there will be two and a half million weddings this year in the United States. Seventy-two billion dollars will be spent this year on weddings in the United States. The average wedding budget is $20,000. The most popular months, we're right in the middle of them, June followed by August, September and October. Well, Debbie and I were married 45 years ago in August, in fact, last weekend. I don't remember the budget, but I can tell you it fell far short of the average. Uh, Back in those days, we served no dinner at the ceremony or afterwards, all right? I mean, our biggest choice was should we purchase the extra macadamia nuts from Hawaii or should we just go with the regular mixed nuts from whatever existed before Costco? I remember we also had a discussion between the color of the mints. So we had cake, we had punch, we had coffee, Marsha's nodding her head knowingly. We had mixed nuts, and we had macadamia nuts. Amazing. However, uh, Debbie and I did introduce into our ceremony a few things a little bit out of the ordinary, uh, a few unique features. We, we really wanted God to be glorified in our wedding. We didn't want Debbie and myself to be the center of attention. We really, really wanted God to get the glory for bringing us together. And so we asked the eight members of our wedding party if they would be willing to give a challenge during the ceremony, a verbal challenge. Each of them did. It was wonderful. Uh, my daughter, uh, my uh, uh, sister-in-law actually, yeah, my sister, yeah, my sister-in-law actually sang uh, her challenge to us. She sang the the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. It was amazing. We asked the congregation to sing. The congregation sang in response toward the end of our service. They sang that, which at that time was a new song uh, by Doris Akers called Sweet, Sweet Spirit. We even had a carpenter in the church build a, a specially built kneeling bench. Back in those days, the couple would kneel and their backs would be the audience. And Some of you will remember this. Guys, if you weren't careful, you needed to check the bottom of your shoes because sometimes on your left shoe would be the the word H-E, the letters H-E and the L-P on the right shoe. So so when you when you put your back to the audience, you were yelling for help. Well, we we had one built, so we faced each other and the audience saw our our profiles and and we we prayed together and then we took communion together. And that was something that wasn't really done back in the day, 45 years ago. But we did all of that because we wanted that wedding ceremony to be more than just a wedding ceremony celebrating our unity. We, we really wanted God to get the glory. Well, today, similarly, this is what's going on here in Psalm 45. So if you haven't turned yet already to that passage of Scripture, please do either in your paper Bible or your digital Bible. And I'd like you to follow along as we we look through this psalm. I'll read through it again, and then we'll take a little bit deeper dive into it. This psalm is a love song. Uh, Specifically, it's a royal wedding poem. And it's written to both celebrate and commemorate the wedding of a Hebrew king to a princess. Most likely she was from another country. Most likely this was, order, it, it, this was done in order to solidify some sort of alliance. That doesn't sound very romantic to me, but nevertheless, that's what's going on here. So let's listen to the words of this wedding poem. 
to the choir master, according to lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My art, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. And at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Well, how on earth do we both interpret and then apply this psalm? Celebrating the the wedding ceremony of a Hebrew king, uh, most likely within the line of David, from thousands of years ago, um, in a physical kingdom that no longer exists. In other words, why is Psalm 45 in Scripture to begin with? And I love that question, and I think we need to ask that question when we approach God's Word, any portion of God's Word. Why is it there? Or the corollary, what would we be missing if it wasn't here? Now we know from both Paul and Peter, Paul in 2 Timothy 3, you're familiar with that passage most likely, verses 16 and 17, Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Peter adds in Second Peter 1 that there's no prophecy of Scripture 
that comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we know with certainty that the sons of Korah, who are the authors of this psalm, are being propelled, so to speak, are being led along in the Spirit in order to communicate something. This song glorifies the king. This song places the king within the line of David, within the Davidic covenant. Do you remember the Davidic covenant? You know, we talk about Abraham's covenant, Adam's, uh, Adam's Abraham, Noah, uh, and, and so forth. The Davidic covenant emerged out of David's desire to build a house for God. David said in 2 Samuel 7, after he had built a beautiful house for himself, he said, God, I, I feel compelled to build one for you now. Instead, God, through the prophet Nathan, says to David, you're not going to build a house for me. In fact, I'm going to build a house for you. And that house will be ongoing. Now, your next descendant, your son, is going to build a place for me, the temple. And Solomon did that. And Solomon reaffirmed that when he, when he built the temple. But God says, I'm going to perpetuate your household. I'm going to build a house for you that will last forever. So that covenant with David applied to the line of David, applied to the kings of David, applied to the king in this passage, but it goes way beyond that. And so that's the first thing we need to see when we look at this, is that Psalm 45, yes, it's, it's a real psalm. It happened in real time. I believe it happened at a real wedding, and then very possibly was used as a template in other weddings as well. But it, it, it points far beyond that. So when we look at a psalm like this, we need to keep in mind that there may be multiple levels of meaning. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we continue to work through this psalm. According to the title, and I'd like you to look at that carefully. Now, we don't know exactly when that title was added, but nevertheless, it's, it's part of uh, the scriptural canon in front of us. And we can learn a lot about what's going on here. We discover that this is a song. It's, it's written to the choir master or the chief musician. It's written according to lilies, which, or some of your Bibles might say Shoshanim, uh, which could have been a reference to the tune. So here are the lyrics, but I'm going to give you the tune that you should use as well. Or it could have been used in reference to one of the instruments, a, a six stringed instrument, that, a shoshanim, that would have been used uh, to accompany the, the lyrics. As a maskil, and we've talked about this this summer already, a maskil is a psalm that instructs. A maskil is a, is a teaching moment, so to speak. So, as a maskil, I believe that the sons of Korah who have written this, um, they're, they're attempting to instruct the king and his bride, even in the midst of this ceremony. They're, they're instructing about God's expectations, and they're exhorting the king and his bride to integrity and justice. It's an opportunity, in fact, for the king and the bride to publicly step into that and to commit to priority aspects of what it means to be a king. Things like justice and equity and truth and humility and righteousness. That, that should be the foundation of your of your rule. 
In other words, it's more than just the pomp and the circumstance and the ceremony and the splendor and the majesty. It's about how they're to live life. And then finally, we learn that it's a love song. And literally, it's a royal wedding poem that was used to to give honor to this couple, but to do so much more than that. Before we look at the psalm verse by verse, I want to just give you a very brief outline. It's very simple. The, this is one of those psalms that it, it falls very nicely into these four parts. Verse 1 is the poet's introduction. Uh, verses 2 through 9 is all about praising the king. And then 10 through 15, the tables turn and praise is given to the bride. And then finally, as a result of their uh, impending union, uh, the last two verses speak of the future legacy. So let's back up and let's look again at these 17 verses and let's see if we can make some sense out of this rather quickly. Verse 1, my heart overflows, literally is a stir with a pleasing or noble theme. I address, literally, I recite my verses, my compositions to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready or skillful scribe. Boy, the language of that introduction is amazing. And in a sense, speaks to the fact of being moved along by the Holy Spirit. Hebrew poetry was, was written for public vocal performance. Perhaps the king is the poet's patron and has asked the sons of Korah to write a piece that could be shared at the wedding. Perhaps that's what's going on here. I love that phrase, what the pen, uh, about the tongue, the, my tongue is like the pen of a, a ready or skillful scribe. What the pen is for a scribe, the tongue is for a Hebrew poet. It, it, this, is, this is so rich with imagery. And then, beginning in verse 2, there's this, section of verses that just praises the king or the royal groom. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, or literally, you are anointed with grace. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. I want you to notice that word forever, because that is an indication that there's something else going on here. This isn't just a celebration of this couple, but it goes far beyond that. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. The, the, the idea is to clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. Uh, the most handsome idea here, first of all, the, the poet is recognizing the, the physical appearance of both uh, groom and bride. He's also acknowledging the fact that this king has apparently a gift for graceful speech. That uh, that phrase there in verse 3 about the sword, that would be symbolic of the king's strength, but also of his hopeful execution of God's justice. And then this splendor and majesty. As you, as you hear that verse and read that verse, does that remind you of anyone? It certainly did me. The first pass through the psalm, I'm reading that, I'm reading the next few verses after that, and I'm thinking, wow, that sounds like somebody. That sounds like somebody I know. All you have to do is go to the, the back of the book, go to Revelation chapter 19, and you'll see similar descriptions. Verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, John writes, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And righteousness, in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
So already we see kind of a, a hint, kind of an inkling that there's more going on here in this wedding poem than what first meets the eye. He continues, verses 4 and 5, In your majesty write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness. Uh, the term really is humility. Meekness, humility. And righteousness. It's interesting. Those two words are actually joined together in the original language. So the sons of Korah are, are somehow coming up with a, uh, a, a coupled word of humility slash righteousness. Let your right hand teach you or display, let your right hand display awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. To me, verse 4 is a key to this entire psalm. Because the sons of Korah are, are bringing to the forefront three very strong virtues that they hope will uniquely shape Israel's understanding of what is important, what is even essential in uh, their life before God. And likewise, as 21st century men and women, followers of Jesus, seekers of Jesus, uh, we can learn from this. Uh, we, we need to allow the biblical text to inform our thinking as well about life's priorities. But let's unpack this very, very quickly. The term truth speaks not only about uh, getting the facts right, about accurate facts, but more than that, it speaks about enduring reliability. This is what the king is called to. This meekness or humility idea, I love this because it's, it's the, both the knowledge and the acceptance of one's true status before God. Some of you have heard me say about God, God is God and I'm not. <laughs> and that's what this humility or, or meekness is all about, recognizing who God is and my place before Him. And this is what the sons of Korah are saying to this king in this public place. At this wonderful occasion, King, this is what you're called to. And then finally, they use the term righteousness, which we've been unpacking in detail at New Life as we go through the book of Romans. It's a legal term. It describes fulfillment of all expectations. It describes the complete performance of one's obligations. Sons of Korah are saying, look, King, this is a great day today, but you're called to righteousness. You're called to fulfill your obligations in order to lead our kingdom. Um, what's interesting is these stated expectations of the king are the exact opposite of what the surrounding nations would be like, where you would have uh, just autocratic, capricious, uh, arrogant leaders. And what they're saying to this king is, you're in the line of David, you don't go there. That's not who you're about. This is what you're to be instead. Verse 5, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. It's like, wow, really? At a wedding ceremony? Okay. Um, it, it would be expected. It would be normal in the culture of that day. We may look at that and go, that doesn't quite fit with where we're coming from, but it would be highly expected in that day. And then suddenly in verse 6 and verse 7, there is a dramatic shift in attention. Notice, your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. Wait a minute. They've been addressing the king, and they're about to address the bride up until this point, and then all of a sudden, boom, your throne, O oh God. Now, is the psalm, are the psalmists, are they equating the king with God? I don't think so. 
In fact, uh, from the early days, uh, early rabbis, long before the time of Jesus, they would, they would uh, translate this in such a way that it would indicate someone yet to come. The Messiah figure who is yet to come in the future. Even the, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it was translated couple of centuries, even three centuries before the time of Jesus, they too, when they translated this into Greek, they gave it the sense that, no, this is God Almighty that's being referenced here. This is the God of creation who's being referenced in verse 6. Notice, the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, on the one hand, literally, what they're saying is, this is God's throne. It's His kingdom. And God is at the center of this whole ceremony. And there's no doubt about that. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a little, tiny little paperback book called Reflections on the Psalms. And in that book, Lewis says that there are second meanings in the Psalms. I would take it a step further. There's, there's multiple meanings in, in the Psalms. And when we find them, they don't exclude each other, but they build on each other. They expand each other. They amplify each other. And these two verses, that's exactly what's going on. Because, you can look at this later, but if you were to turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, you'll see that these two verses are directly and completely quoted by God in reference to Jesus. We've been singing about that this morning. We're yet to sing about it a little bit later this morning about Jesus is better. In Hebrews chapter 1, God is making the point that Jesus is better than the angels. The whole book of Hebrews is, is that Jesus is better than this, that, and the other thing. But in chapter 1, he's better than the angels. And these two verses are used in order to make that point. Hebrews 1, verse 8 begins with, But of the Son, He, that is God, says, and then he quotes Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. One commentator made the statement, this is an example of Old Testament language bursting its banks <laughs> to demand more than just a human fulfillment. It's kind of like uh, David in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And how Jesus uses that and quotes that to the Pharisees in Matthew 22 in order to make the point of who He is. And in fact, He is deity. This, um, having, living where we do, we have the benefit of, of understanding this so much more. On the one hand, I think the sons of Korah are saying, look, God's kingdom here is not synonymous with our kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. His kingdom is greater. There's more to come. But they didn't fully understand that. They couldn't have. But we have the benefit of looking back through the lens of Hebrews. Hebrews makes the connection. The sons of Korah recited these words about the king, but God takes those words and applies it to Jesus. It's amazing. The Scottish theologian and then turned missionary Leslie Newbigin, who served in India for many years, has made this comment about what, what's going on here. He said to, to pastors, he says, you're in the pulpit to expound the text, but you must set it in the wider context of the story which the Bible as a whole tells. Amen. 
And the Bible tells this great story of creation followed by sin and the fall, but followed by God's redemptive plan, which goes through the ages. And here we have an example where God Himself quotes His Word to make the point and the application to Jesus. Notice in verse 7, You've been anointed, they said, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. For the occasion of this wedding, the sons of Korah would be referencing not only the, the perfumes and, and ointments and whatnot that would be upon that, uh, that king, but also they would be referencing the fact of his role as ruler. That term anointed is the, um, the same root word that we get the word Messiah from. So again, there's, there's these allusions that are all throughout this passage. Verses 8 and 9. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, which is cinnamon. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor, and at your right hand stands the queen, or the royal bride, dressed in gold of Ophir. Uh, these these daughters of kings uh, playing a strategic role, cementing alliances between nations. This gold of Ophir that the bride is wearing, uh, the rarest commodity of all. Um, coming from a kind of an unknown place, possibly in Saudi Arabia somewhere. But it, 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 in Scripture, it's, it's, the, it's the gold standard. It's the standard for purity and quality. In other words, this bride is dressed in the, in the finest. And then as a result the psalmists go on to praise the bride. Verses 10 through 15. Hear, O daughter, or hear, O princess, and consider and incline or turn your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. And the king will desire, literally the king will crave, long for, will be enthralled by your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him or honor and give him respect. Old loyalties can't compete. They must not compete with her new life. One commentator suggested maybe she's homesick. I, who, it doesn't, the text doesn't indicate that directly, but who knows? She's the princess from another land most likely, and here she is about to be made queen. And the challenge to her is forget your people. Forget your father's house. This, this is an interesting compliment to Genesis 2:24, the leave and cleave and be made one flesh, which is given as a challenge to the man. This is a challenge to the bride as well. I want to make just a, a brief comment here in relationship to how we interpret Scripture. Because the last, last half of verse 11 uh, could be a problematic uh, verse for some people. It could be misinterpreted, could be misunderstood. Since He is your Lord, bow to Him. And literally, the term is to... to Put yourself on the ground in front of him to bow before him. Now, that doesn't sit very well, right? With our 21st century culture, particularly here in the Pacific Northwest. Rather than imposing our understanding, our contemporary cultural understanding, onto a biblical text, brothers and sisters, we're we're called to let the biblical text inform what we think. Now, I'm not suggesting that at wedding ceremonies 
the bride should bow down on the ground before the husband. I'm not suggesting that. But it would have been expected. It would have been understood. This is a, a message to a king, a royal king. And it, it, as such, she is subject to him. Does that make sense? But she's so much more than that. Um, in, in fact, clearly there are roles in this marriage, but she's going to derive dignity. She's going to derive respect. She's going to, from her new position, her new role, in the next few verses, we'll see this. I'm reminded of a couple paraphrases of Romans 12, Romans 12, 2. Listen to the paraphrase uh, by Eugene Peterson. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God, and you'll be changed from the inside out. Or the old J.B. Phillips translation or, or paraphrase, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. That's the challenge I want to leave as we, as we, with you as we interpret, continue to interpret this scripture, is that allow God's word to inform our thinking, our behavior, as opposed to the reverse of that. In verses 12 and 13, she is encouraged, the bride is encouraged by the fact that people from all around, people from Tyre, which was a former very significant trading partner of both David and Solomon, people from those parts of, of the world will seek your favor with gifts. The most wealthy of their people, the richest of those people, will court your favor. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. Not, no longer is she the daughter in her father's house, but now she's going to be a sought-after queen in her new house. Amazing. That translation of verse 13 um, is in her chamber is a bit unfortunate, I think, because really what's, what's being said here is that all glorious is the princess within. And it most likely speaks more to her with inside character than it does inside a, a particular room. Life is about to change for her as a result of her obedience to what God is asking her to do. And then in verses 14 and 15, in many colored, or in, it's, it's the idea of, of embroidered needlework, multicolored robes, she's led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. And with joy and gladness, they're led along as they enter the palace of the king. Once again, this would be typical of that day and time, typical of that culture, this wedding procession where uh, the king would come with his um, attendants, both men and women, and they would go to the house of wherever this queen-to-be was, and they would then bring her back, and they would proceed back to the king's residence for the actual ceremony. You think of Jesus referencing that in the parable of the ten virgins who are carrying their lamps with oil, some with prepared with oil, some not. Um, it, again, it's a very cultural thing that's going on here. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance involved. As a result of this union, there is a future legacy that's yet to come. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. Well, I'd, I'd love to teach or preach a message sometime just on that phrase alone. Uh, an amazing turn of the phrase. And you will make them princes in all the earth. And then in verse 17, suddenly... There's another shift, and we're back to the first-person voice of, the, po of the, the poet. I will cause your name to be remembered, or I will perpetuate your memory. 
in all or through every generation. That's exactly what's happening, right? I'm preaching a message this morning. We're commemorating something that actually occurred millennia ago. And therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Or nations will praise you forever and literally and until. Until what? Until this future promise that is yet to be fulfilled. The the hopes, the expectations that Israel would have for their kings were ultimately completed and we know are ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Anointed One. And that's why nations will praise Him forever and until. Uh, this, this royal wedding uh, was a national occasion. Uh, this isn't just for two individuals. This isn't like a house ceremony with two individuals. No, the whole nation would have come together. This is a big deal. It's like uh, months ago, I, I have a, a niece who lives in South Carolina. She's very southern has multiple children, many of which are daughters, and they got up super early to watch the latest royal wedding from England. It's a big deal. And people around the world were, were watching that. Well, the same thing would have been occurring here. And so the, the, the future of the nation is about to be secured through this wedding. But beyond that, the future of God's kingdom is going to be perpetuated through the line of David. You know, the, the Old Testament frequently uses marriage as a, as a metaphor for God's love, for His chosen people, for the nation of Israel. And then in the New Testament, it changes. It's a picture of Jesus Christ's love for His bride, the church. In Ephesians 5, for example, Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's that. There's that statement out of Genesis, again, speaking of marriage. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is all done in the context of mutual submission to one another. Paul makes that very, very clear. So, that kind of uh, Christian marriage becomes then a beautiful picture today, to the world, of how much God loves His people. So what? Now what? It's one thing to just talk through a passage, but it's another thing to then step back and say, what does this mean for me? And where do I go from here? The last few weeks, the Psalms have focused on lament, (laughs) Pastor Scott and I were joking this last week about how, you know, he's done with all the laments. I get to get up here and talk about a happy time, about a wedding, right? Um, We've focused on the suffering of life, the hardships of life, and and how to respond to that. Well, what do we do with this psalm? Francis Schaeffer, who is an apologist of the 20th century, wrote a classic book called How Should We Then Live? And so we're left with that question. How should we then live as a result of what we've seen today in Psalm 45? Well, there's a, there's a key here. There's a clue here. And it's in verse 1 and in verse 17. These two verses, like many of the Psalms, serve as bookends to what's going on in the verses in between. In verse 1, there's this description of the uh, of of, this, of the heart overflowing, my heart overflows. The 
poet says, with a pleasant theme. And I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. And then verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. And therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. The sons of Korah, I believe, give us a model. They don't just write out truth and give us information, but they even give us a model to follow. And so I'm left with the question, are our hearts astir? Are our hearts overflowing like theirs are? They must be. They should be. And as a result of that, will we cause His name, the true fulfillment of this prophecy, so to speak, from Psalm 45, will we cause His name to be remembered in all generations? That's why I want to challenge men especially, we and dads and grandpas and great-grandpas, we need to be focused on and committed on what I would call next-generation disciple building and do whatever it takes to challenge that next generation and the one beyond that to step into the reality of, of what it means to follow Jesus. I got a couple of other pictures that w- they came in too late for me to uh, share this morning, but Debbie was telling me last night that in that pre-op meeting of our son with his two two of his three boys, he was able to to hold their faces in the cups cupped in his hands and give them a blessing before he went into surgery. Because you never know, right? And so he wanted to make sure that that was the last thing they would remember. That's next generation disciple building. That's pouring ourselves into our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. So that the end of this passage, all nations, including our children, will praise Him forever and ever. I took Debbie to the airport uh, at... Well, I dropped her off at the curb at 5 a.m. on Friday morning, and on my way back to the house... I turned the radio on and there was a song being played, which I've heard before, but I hadn't really paid attention to it. Even So Come, written by the the group Passion. Listen to these lyrics. All of creation, all of the earth, make straight a highway, a path for the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. Call back the sinner. Wake up the saint. Let every nation shout of your fame. Jesus is coming soon. There will be justice. All will be new. Your name forever, faithful and true. Jesus is coming soon. Like a bride waiting for her groom, will be a church ready for you. Every heart longing for our King, we sing, even so come. Lord Jesus, come. Even so come. Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, thank You for including Psalm 45 in such a beautifully expressive way to point us to You, to point us to Jesus, who's better than anything else, life itself. We are so grateful for the truth of Your Word this morning. Would You please, through the power of Your Holy Spirit, Take this word, 
plant it deeply into uh, the recesses of our hearts and may it there uh, take root and then bear fruit for the glory of that name, the name of Jesus. Amen.